The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Our guest is Professor of History and Chair of the History, Politics, and International Relations Department at Webster University in St. Louis. He is the author of Beyond the Prison Gates, Punishment and Welfare in Germany, 1850 to 1933, which won the Baker Burton Prize of the Southern Historical Association. He serves on the Executive Committee of the Holocaust Museum and Learning Center in St. Louis and has been a visiting fellow at Harvard University's Center for European Studies and the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. We'd like to welcome Dr. Warren Rosenblum. Warren, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. You know, I had you on the show to discuss uh, some of the monument situations that are going on. I read an article of an interview that you did with KSDK Channel 5 here in St. Louis and was taken by many of the things that you said recently. I, well, I woke up and read that Francis Scott Key Monument in Golden Gate Park had been torn down. Also, General Grant there. I know there's discussions in New York about the Teddy Roosevelt Monument Christopher Columbus statue was removed here at Tower Grove Park in St. Louis, and and there's a lot of uh, dynamics going on, and I guess what I'd like to do is kind of frame some things, and uh, first question is, what really historically, what are the historic reasons that monuments are placed in the first place? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, I, you know, I think um, it depends on the period in which the monument was erected. I mean, um, there's there's a long history of of building monuments to remember victories in particular um napoleon's arc de triomphe in paris is a really famous example of that um in germany there's uh, all sorts of, of victory monuments very often you know grand pillars or or gates that were built um in honor of a of a Victory and, and that tradition, I think I, I, I'm kind of speaking off the cuff here, but I, my my sense is that that probably goes all the way back to um, to Rome and before that to ancient Greece and and probably you know even before the printed word. I'm guessing there there probably were victory monuments of that kind as well. So monuments are built, you know, to the glory of an army, to the glory of a leader, um, definitely to you know memorialize. Um, a king and to, to memorialize uh, heroes and um, and then we kind of uh, invig- reinvigorated that tradition in the time of democracy by building monuments to to the nation and and to our sense of ourselves as a people as a whole and that you know and when you think about it that's a pretty radical step to say this isn't just about heroes and this isn't just about leaders, but monuments that are supposed to give us a sense of ourselves as a people. And um, in many ways, one of the, the greatest and most famous monuments is, is the one that, that sits in New York Harbor, to, you know, Monument to Liberty and, and to the ideal that is represented in the, in the principles of liberty and in the founding of the country. Um, and the Washington Monument in Washington has much more of a traditional relationship to that idea of the great man who's going to have this uh, physical presence that's going to supposedly live forever. 
Um, and then as we get closer to our own time, you know, monuments started being created, especially to assert ethnic identity and ethnic belonging. And so in St. Louis and Forest Park, there's the monument to Friedrich Jan, who um, is a German figure from the 19th century, who probably, the name probably means nothing to most Americans today, even people of German heritage. But back in the day, Friedrich Jan was a one of the creators of a German nationalist sensibility. He helped uh, kick the French occupiers out of the German lands. And so right around the time of World War One, before World War One, um, the Germans of St. Louis came together and said, let's have a Friedrich Jan monument here in Forest Park to kind of assert our ethnic identity and our place in the great American panorama. And that's also what takes us to um, a Columbus monument, you know, that very often those were built by the Italian-American com- community many times coming out of a history of being oppressed and here with a monument kind of connecting themselves to that tradition of greatness and saying, you know, we, we belong here and here's our status being expressed in stone. Um, and then I guess finally, you know, in the, in the, in the, since, uh, World War One and since World War Two, especially, we've had a tendency, uh, to build monuments to people who are kind of regular people, but who struggled against oppression. Um, in St. Louis, we have a monument that's relatively new to Dred and Harriet Scott, uh, right near the courthouse where Dred Scott first made his arguments, um, on the other side of the old courthouse, there's a monument to Frankie Freeman, who is a, a civil rights lawyer. So we've gotten in the habit, I think, in the last 40, 50 years of building monuments to people who, who themselves kind of represent uh, struggle against power and, um, and, and taking even farther that notion of the people expressing itself in stone um, and, and giving kind of a permanent marker to its own struggles. So as... As history is kind of lights are, are cast in different portions of history and reveal different things about times and epochs and individuals or groups of individuals, and then information comes out. I'm thinking of, like, uh, you know, Christopher Columbus. I'm thinking of many of the Confederate generals who uh, sit in public squares, especially in the South. And you get a you get a perspective now of well they did this but they also did this which has caused a lot of fervor today you know uh, Francis Scott Key uh, General Grant in in San Francisco what what's the danger if any in removing monuments or statues and and, and how do you balance that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a danger in um, in effacing his in facing history, you know, in wiping the slate clean. And, you know, if you look at other countries that have done that, you know, it, it, it should make us very uncomfortable. You know, countries that went about a kind of wholesale destruction of the past in order to build a new future, um, you know, that happened in the Soviet Union, uh, where in their most radical period they were wildly tearing down old monuments and statues. It, it happened in um, China under Mao. Um, it happened, uh, you know, with Hitler. It happened with Mussolini to some extent. And so I think that's the danger, that there becomes this kind of fanaticism of, you know, and a kind of overzealous, overconfidence that we can separate ourselves from history 
and we can just build something new from scratch. And, you know, there's a lot of dangers in that because in, in trying to just do away with history, you, you do away with um, nuance. You do away with the fact that, you know, every history is complicated and we have to consider both the bad and the good in every case when, when talking about history. Um, it also, you know, creates a kind of ugliness, I think, because history is beautiful. Very often the layers of history, even when they are um, ambiguous, they're nevertheless, they, they, they're, they're, they're how we live our lives, and so there's a certain amount of beauty in history, and I think we all recognize the ugliness of societies that have just gone about a kind of wholesale destruction of history. Um, so those, those are the risks. Also, I think just the risk of forgetting, you know, it's not necessarily a step forward if we forget the fact that we as a country, um, you know, once upon a time used to worship the, the wrong gods that we used to kind of hold up heroes who really weren't deserving of, of, of that honor. I think that, that needs to be remembered. So there's, I guess, another danger in all this. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, we, we need to be honest about our past, and we need to be honest about the people that have been put on pedestals. And sometimes when looking closely and thinking about what they represent today, um, I think we can and should reach the conclusion that it's time to take them off the pedestal. And, uh, but I, think, I don't think it's an easy decision, and I don't think we should move too quickly. I think it's right to be cautious. It's right to be thoughtful. Um, it's, you know, taken me a long time um, to make up my mind about kind of individual monuments, individual pieces of history that, that decorate our parks and our, and our cities. And, um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't regret that. I think, I think you kind of have to move slow. Um, but there's moments in history where people are rising up and people are asserting themselves and people are demanding change. And sometimes monuments become a really good shorthand for saying, this is the change we want. And by, by bringing down a statue, you are collectively asserting yourself in a, in a beautiful and special way. And you know, one example of that that I think we could probably all uh, agree with is when they brought down the statues of Stalin in places like Warsaw and, um, and Budapest and Prague. You know, when they brought down these statues that were symbols of oppression, um, of Stalin, of Lenin, uh, of others who um, represented, you know, an ideology that people no longer accepted. You know, I think the world applauded in 1990, 1991, when those statues were being torn down. And likewise, I think we can applaud that America today is tearing down a lot of its Confederate statues, um, which is even more overdue in terms of the timeline that, you know, these uh, people who by any definition of the word, were traitors to the nation and people who were defending a system of white supremacy and a system of oppression that, um, you know, nine times out of ten, these, these monuments really needed to come down. And, and that in this sort of revolutionary moment where people are rising up and demanding change, that the tearing down of a monument can really represent an important symbolic act. Well, especially at the time that they were erected. And you know, during Jim Crow, yeah. and yeah. it's not like they're yeah. in a cemetery. Right. You know, they're in the public square, they're in front of a courthouse. And, right. Uh, it, it yeah. Just, just as in your face for for yes. Black America. Yeah. 
Yeah, excellent point. Yeah. And I mean, so often in the case of the Confederate statues, it was an assertion of identity uh, by people who were trying to build um, a, a white supremacist identity. You know, it was this statement in the 1890s and early 20th century of people that were the same people that were promoting Jim Crow and saying, you know, just like the Italian-Americans were asserting their identity with statues of Columbus and the Germans were asserting their identity with um, statues in various cities of people like Friedrich Jan or, or the writer Goethe, who has a big statue in Chicago, that um, people who were identifying themselves with a white supremacist movement were saying, you know, through this statue, we can kind of rally together a sense of belonging and um and there's just no question that that has got to be offensive to us today, and um, and that tearing down those statues is kind of an important collective act. There's another statue in St. Louis, the Louis the Ninth statue, a very famous statue in St. Louis in front of the St. Louis Art Museum that has been there for many, many years. It's very iconic. It's representative of the identity of St. Louis, and frankly, St. Louis gets its name from Louis the Ninth. But there's been a little controversy about that. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I very much respect the um, argument that's being made in favor of removing the statue. I respect it in the sense that I you know I understand where it's coming from, and um, you know I'm I'm Jewish myself, and the fact that uh, Louis the Ninth had been involved in um, the forced conversion of Jews on a mass scale and actually really in some ways the mass murder of Jews uh, and Muslims during during the Crusades is certainly vital to know about. I mean, again, we, we should know that history. Um, but I think the, the thought of tearing down the statue to me is, 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 is absurd. I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with it at all. Um, I think it's really crucial to realize that Louis IX was operating in the 13th century and that this was a very different world from our own, our own conceptions of religious tolerance and just the acceptance of people of different faiths was utterly unknown um, in, in, in Louis IX's time, and, uh, and that while these atrocities were awful, um, we cannot possibly judge somebody from that era by the standards of our own time. Um, I mean, Judaism itself is a religion in which we celebrate at Hanukkah the story of a bunch of um, zealots from biblical times who you know, slaughtered their enemies, but also slaughtered many Jews who they saw as, um, as drifting from the faith. And so there was a kind of absolute extremism among uh, the Maccabees, who were the, the Jewish family that was at the heart of the Hanukkah story. Um, Islam has its own story of, you know, forced conversion and massacres and what we would call atrocities in the name of religion. And so when you look at somebody like Louis IX, um, unlike modern figures, I do think you've got to put him back into, his, uh, in, into the time period and realize that, you know, all these do count as atrocities and all these were, by our standards, horrific, that this was just a very, very different period in which uh, religion and violence were intertwined and, um, you know, using violence to further religious goals was considered absolutely normal. In fact, that's how Louis IX ends up as a saint. Um, so, you know, by putting that man on a pedestal and, and on horseback to boot, I don't think we're endorsing what he did by a long shot. I think that's, that's just kind of off the wall to even suggest that. I think it's much more of an abstract kind of symbolism. It's, it's linking us 
to an ancient history that we all know, or we all should know, um, is complicated, very different from our own, and has, you know, dark and light intertwined in ways that today it's just um, hard to imagine. Which would make you think in four or five hundred years, what will people think of what we immortalized or what we memorialized or what we decided to put in, in a monument or a right, name on a building? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's possible that a lot of things that we'll immortalize are just going to be kind of quaint, you know, vague memories um, in, in the era ahead. And I think that's a little different than when, I think it's very different than when we memorialize people from the last few hundred years who played a role in the founding of our country, who are intertwined with the mythology of America, I think that's a, a very different equation. And so I think, you know, tearing down a statue of Robert E. Lee is absolutely justifiable because of his role in white supremacy, because of the legacy that's there today. Um, I think tearing down a statue of Columbus can be defended, is justifiable, because, again, Columbus is wrapped up in the mythology of America, because, you know, our founding, who we are today, is, in fact, um, directly on a line back to Columbus. But I think in the case of Louis Nineteenth, you're talking about somebody who, you know, is from an era that's just shrouded in, in a much different kind of mythology, and, and where the, the values and the standards are just absolutely different from our own, and, um, and he's much more of a pure symbol. He's really just, you know, uh, almost an, an abstract symbol, because we happen to end up with the name St. Louis. You know, it's, it's um, in some ways, for us, really kind of an accident of history. You know, when you think about how, honestly, how little the French really, you know, don't mean to insult my French friends here, but the French really didn't have a major influence on the founding of St. Louis. Um, if they had, as terms of our actual founding as a city, maybe we, um, we wouldn't have had slavery in, in Missouri, and we wouldn't have had, you know, slaves auctioned on the steps of the courthouse, because the French, in fact, did embrace emancipation earlier than we did. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that the French, you know, had a very slight, very uh, modest influence in the region. They weren't here for very long. You know, they just showed up long enough to kind of put their name on this little town along the Mississippi River. And, um, and so it's kind of a quaint piece of history that we've you know, inherited that name and that uh, element of Frenchness. Would you, would you expand on the mythology of history? I, I think I, I know exactly what you mean, but I, I want to be sure, and I want to make sure the listeners really understand that. I think yeah. that's a very important point. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think part of our mythology of America is the mythology of the founding and the notion of, you know, these upright um, people with big hearts coming from Europe and um, dealing with what they called savages and um, planting European ideas and planting Christianity and, and then engaging in what becomes this idea of manifest destiny, where they're spreading across the continent and bringing the light of civilization. You know, that is the mythology that probably you and I both grew up with. It's, it's still around us. Um, we have a holiday that is still in the books that celebrates Columbus, which is you know the beginning of that story, the beginning of that mythology. And so I think we are in a struggle against that myth. And I think when people rise up today in um, in Minneapolis and in St. Louis and in Ferguson, I think they are rising up against that mythology. And so tackling the Columbus statue 
make sense as a protest against a false mythology that, that we've grown up with and that has been imposed upon us, and that part of this kind of revolutionary moment is, is to turn against that mythology. I think when we look at Louis the Ninth, it's completely different, because that's a, a, a very foreign mythology. That's the, you know, that's the Crusades, that's Europe, that's um, you know, the unfolding of a religious warfare that everybody on all sides was engaged with. You know, the, the, the Ottomans were trying to conquer Europe at various points. The um, Arabs of the North Africa were trying to conquer Spain. The Inquisition fought back. The, you know, Isabel Ferdinand and all of that um, storyline belongs to Europe's history, but it is a very foreign history to us. It doesn't directly implicate who we are today in the United States. And so I think going after the Louis IX statue is kind of chasing the wrong mythologies. You know, that's really not a story that um, directly implicates America and who we are today. And I don't think it was ever the intention when they built the Louis IX statue. I don't think they were trying to make some statement about, you know, triumphant Christianity. I certainly don't think they were denigrating Jews and denigrating Muslims by building that statue um, on Art Hill. You know, so I, I just think it's a really different equation, and that we shouldn't conflate, um, you know, what what's really not part of our American story with the kinds of struggles that that we're facing right here now. Very well stated. So, what what are some alternatives to some monuments remaining while balancing an understanding of the individual. Uh, I was reading an article where there's the emancipation statue where Lincoln is freeing the slave, and the slave is kneeling, and that particular one, that's in in Washington, D.C., but there's several others around the country, one in Boston, and this person in Boston was saying, well, that's offensive to me because the slave is kneeling, even though he's free, he's kneeling at the feet of, of Lincoln. How do you yeah. how do you balance, or what are some alternatives to offer people rather than let's let's tear all these things down that are offensive if they're offensive to anybody? Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, it's a great question, and I know the statue you're talking about. I think it's the one in Lincoln Park yes. in um, Washington D.C. Um, that you know I've often looked at and and also been kind of astounded by by the way it's presented. Um, you know, I would hope that we could over time, develop a more nuanced sense of what these monuments represent. I mean, I'm, I'm not really a big fan of monuments in general if they are just supposed to be celebratory, because, you know, I don't think that's really what history is about. I don't think history should be about celebration. I don't think these monuments should be about identity building, um, and especially when they become old, you know, when they've been there for 100 years, and I don't know how old the one is in, in Washington and Lincoln Park, but I'm guessing that's, that's probably 100 years old at least, um, you know, that we, that we developed a better ability to just think about them in general as being products of their time and, um, and that you're not supposed to go up and look at them and, and say, ah, this is the truth, you know, this is inspiration, but rather, you know, to just see them as little artifacts of history and... Um, and that if people are being taught in school and in their own readings correctly, then they'll look at these monuments with a certain sense of, of irony, you know, to say, okay, well, boy, that's how they saw 
emancipation 100 years ago, but I know from my education that, that that's wrong, you know, that Lincoln didn't just free the slaves. And in many ways, I think most U.S. historians today would say that to, to a remarkable extent, the slaves freed themselves, you know, that slaves um, rose up during the Civil War and that they, you know, they left the South, they marched towards the North, and in many ways they forced Lincoln's hand. And as people know today, you know, Lincoln had been rather reluctant to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, but at some point he really needed to do it because of um, the course of events. And uh, so when a, you know, when a statue is sitting there that gets that story wrong, you know, I think we ought to be able to say, okay, well, that's, you know, Lincoln was an important figure, and, and the Emancipation Proclamation was an amazing and important document, but that's not the whole story. You know, the story is, is in part just flat-out different than, than what's in front of me. You know, and by the way, it's not so different from going to see a movie, right? I mean, when we, you know, Spielberg came out with his Lincoln movie, um, he also got the story wrong to a large extent, right? I mean, he, he gave us that heroic narrative of Lincoln freeing the slaves and, and kind of left aside the story of, of how, the extent to which African-Americans emancipated themselves. Um, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. I mean, we can go see the movie and, uh, and we can talk about it, we can debate it, and, and hopefully that's, that's good. So, um, so I'm not in favor of simply roaming the country and finding every statue that, that gets history wrong and every statue that has um, an ambivalent or even a figure with a lot of um, a strong you know, negative and, and tearing those statues down. I don't, I don't think that's healthy for us as a democracy, and, I, and it seems to me, it smacks to me of of overzealousness. And there are consequences for that overzealousness. I, th- I think like 50, 60, 70 years down the road where people then who have not had this particular kind of influence of an individual or a group of individuals to balance history out, it, it goes back to, I think, something that you said, you have to know your history. And it that's a, that's a tough thing right now as other things are revealed about our history, or people mm-hmm. are really looking at it honestly, and uh, it's not being written by a particular viewpoint. And, you know, I know as kids are growing up, they're like, I don't want to memorize names and dates and things like that. It's uh, how would you go about suggesting that history be taught? Well, um... now, I know that's a loaded question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's it's a million dollar question because it's one that you know we think a lot about ourselves, not just when we're teaching at the university level, but thinking about so many of our future educators in K through twelve and how are they going to present these issues? And um, you know, I, I, there has been a real sea change in my own lifetime, and I'm you know, I'm, I'm fifty five. Um, there's been a real change in just what history is supposed to do for us, you know, and I'm, I'm part of that generation that, you know, school teachers were trying to find heroes and villains everywhere they looked, and it kind of had to be one or the other, and somehow history was supposed to be about us, it was supposed to be about our identity, and um, I grew up in a pretty liberal place, um, Evanston, Illinois, which is just a northern suburb of Chicago, and, um, you know, so they had expanded the definition of who were the heroes, and we certainly had, they had put Martin Luther King in the pantheon of heroes, um, and uh, you know, Bull Connor, and 
and some of the southern segregationists were in the pantheon of villains, um, but it definitely was supposed to be a story of heroes and villains. And I think, I hope, today we've moved somewhat away from that in that um, the point of learning history is not about just good guys and bad guys, but that, um, that our past is, is really complicated and, and that often good people made terrible choices and often good people found themselves living in evil structures and had to you know, do their best, had to muddle through as well as they could. Um, that everywhere you look, you see good people that made um, bad choices. You know, I mean, even Abraham Lincoln, who is a figure that you know, I, in many ways, do revere as a person, I'd be the first to admit that he, he made some terrible choices and um, you know, the, the decision on the execution of the Native Americans in Minnesota is one of the most famous ones where um, he allowed this execution to go forward um, and his decisions he made around the war, around the delays in emancipating um, the slaves. You know, there's all sorts of bad decisions that somebody like Lincoln made, in part because he just found himself constrained in part because he you know wasn't quite as progressive as we might have hoped he would have been you know but but that's the richness of history is that it's populated by figures making difficult choices under very often extreme circumstances that we ourselves hope we never have to face um and so uh you know when it, when we us at the holocaust museum in st louis um you know, again, it's not just because they're supposed to learn that the Nazis were villains and the Jews were the good guys. I mean, that's, that's all the point is that you know, history unfolded in a manner that uh, no one could have predicted and that a lot of good people made a lot of terrible choices and um, even some bad people made some good choices and that, uh, that, that, that history unfolded the way that it did for complicated reasons that we need to do our best to understand today. Um, and that we need to have a critical eye towards how and why the past unfolded. But I think the, I think the key point really is that people should learn a sense of causality. You know, why, how does history unfold in the way that it did, and and spend less time worrying about you know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. That's well said. Thanks again, Warren, for coming on and and taking your time. This is this has been. A very great conversation, and I know people will will appreciate uh, what you have to say when they listen to this. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you. We've been talking to Warren Rosenblum, who's professor of history and chair of the History and Politics and International Relations Department at Webster University here in St. Louis.